morning again. If you're part of King's Kids, you can head on back. If you'd like to hear this uh, sermon translated live into Spanish, you could dial the number that's on the screen. We have a live simultaneous uh, translation. And for those of you that are just here joining us, we want to welcome you that are just popping in. It's a good day to pop in because actually this is probably one of the best sermons that I'm ever going to preach today. So you guys have really come on a good day. Seriously, this is the end. This is really the end of our of our journey through Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of faith. And uh, we've done 13 or 14 sermons on that. I think this is our 40th in Hebrews. And, and um, do we end on a high note? Well, I don't know. It depends on what you consider a high note. Some of these people that we're going to read about today, um, I would say are probably not the best, uh, let's say, uh, content to put in like a newspaper or on, or on Indeed for, you know, become a Christian. Look at these people as the example. Our writer has just got through talking about all the powerhouse examples of faith, starting with Abel and just going through the Old Testament as we've talked about each one of those, he now does what we like to call in sales a feature dump. <laughs> Just start to dump all the features of the product. And you, you, he dumps it so fast that he even says in verse 32, he says, what, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of, and then he starts to just dump all these other people that had these powerful displays of faith. And I'll read through those right now. He says, Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He just throws all the prophets in there. Verse 33, who by faith, and he talks about what they've done, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And here we shift gears, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And now he starts to go into some more dark areas. These are the things that probably wouldn't make it on the Indeed job description. It says, others experience mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And in verse 39, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now all these, what he means is he's talking about everybody from the very first verse of the chapter, because that's what he talks about. He says, the, the, the men of old gained approval, and he went in, 
And so he's bookmarking it with that. They didn't receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So you can see here this description. The, the writer categorizes both of these, all of these uh, examples into two categories, I would say. I would say there's triumphant faith, right? They were conquering kingdoms and they were defeating armies. And then there's tragic faith. And that's what I really want to talk about more today because we've talked so much about how faith will triumph as we trust God like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even despite our own sin, even despite our own ridiculous plans that we make, God still, because of his grace and his love towards us, he follows through by still using us in his plan to bring forth that kingdom of God. But then there's the tragic part that we have problems with. I was reading about Pastor Wang Yi. He's a pastor in China. This happened, you may have remembered, back in 2018, where people, well, from the Chinese government, stormed this man's church. It was the Early Rain Covenant Church, just like we're hanging out here right now. Church or the, the, the government officers came in because it was considered a non-state church. They came in, they had their guns, they literally just, just took the place apart, and they took over 100 congregants into prison, and they separated them all. They interrogated them. They beat them. They beat them in front of their families. But they took some extra... Uh, steps to really threaten and beat up their pastor to see if he would recant and he would stop. And he said, no, I am not going to stop this. And his faith was so strong that when he was in de uh, detention, he released a statement called my declaration of faithful disobedience. He was given a prison sentence of nine years. He was stripped of all political rights, the same, same with his family. And all of his personal assets were confiscated. He literally gave everything for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know most of us haven't experienced anything like that. We probably won't. Hopefully not. I, I mean, at least I could say in our near future, we will receive persecution. They'll try to shut us up. They'll try to get us to say things that are okay and not, not offensive, however you want to describe that. But maybe there will come a day when, when this would happen in our country. But right now, we don't see it that way. But I do believe, looking out even to all of us, we've all experienced this tragic side of faith. Now, there's some things that would be really easy for us to sort of sweep this under the rug. There's lots of philosophies. We were talking in our Sunday Bible study about Robert Kushner's book, Why Bad Things Happen, I'm sorry, Rabbi Kushner's book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Very common thing to say. And I was talking to a chaplain uh, the other day at Center State Hospital, and this is the very word she said, you know, well, when we deal with things uh, like, why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, as if that is the big, you know, showstopper 
of trying to understand God, because if God were real, there would be definitely all, it would just be all good, right? But there are ways that people do try to justify it. I know it's very tempting, even when bad things happen here to people in the church, right? It's very, and, and people we come in contact with that know you as a Christian. And they say, I can't believe I lost my loved one, or this, I lost my job. And our temptation is to just say, oh, don't worry, God is good, you're going to see something good is going to come out of it. And oftentimes, I, if we do say that, we realize that that's just not sufficient, it's just not. As a matter of fact, the other person sometimes will even say, this guy or this gal has no idea what they're talking about. It's real easy to say that. Well, this guy in his book said that God doesn't have anything to do with the evil that's going on in the world. It's not his fault. Very easy. Oh, okay, well, at least it's not God's fault. It must be my fault or some sort of happenstance. Is that true? And in Indian religion, we have something called karma. This would be really cool if God could just act this way, right? Let's just have karma. All the bad things that are happening in my life right now, everything bad that happens to me, all the tragedies that happen to me, it's all my fault. It's all my fault because something in another life, my previous life, I messed up, and now I'm paying for it in this life. And if I just do good in this life, my next life is going to be even better. But neither of these solutions are biblical. This is not what God says. God is in 100% complete control of everything that goes on. Karma is a false uh, philosophy, although we do know in the Bible what you sow is what you reap, but it has nothing to do with regeneration or reincarnation. It has to do with following God, honoring God, and God will bless you doesn't necessarily mean that blessing is going to equate with what you think it should equate in your mind, but he will, in fact, bless you for that. So the question remains, why do these things happen? How come we could look through the Hall of Faith, the most popular chapter in the Bible that talks about enduring, that talks about how great God is, we have these examples of these horrific, tragic things happening. Why does God use tragedy in our lives? Why does he use triumph? How do we maintain faith in times of tragedy? And if you're waiting for a complete answer to the question of why, I do not have one. I don't. And that's oftentimes the, the, the only thing that we could say is, I don't know why. But we do know who. We do know who God is. We do know the character of God sort of cancels out some of the things and craziness that we have in our mind. God can't be cruel. God can't be unfair. God can't be just. And we know God is love. Now these are all the just standard things that we could say but we really must have that first as our foundation when we deal with tragedy. But there is a partial answer, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, which I hope will encourage you when things happen, or if you even are going through something right now that has to do with your faith, your belief in God being challenged, 
by tragedy, being challenged by even some of the things we've read here in these scriptures where people were actually um, congratulated and here exonerated and, and lifted up to be put into scripture, that they endured such crazy things. I believe the answer to the question on whether or not you'll receive this or not, whether or not this is even going to make sense, is going to have to do with who you truly believe God is. But more importantly, what you truly think God is doing in all of this thing that we call life and world and however you want to look at it in all of creation. Who is God? And is he sovereign? And secondly, what is he doing? What is he up to? When you look at the text, he says the very first part of the text, the writers and the hearers of uh, the writer and the hearers were very familiar with these men, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. That's why he sort of dumps them out. It would be sort of like me saying the founders of our country, George Washington, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Franklin, blah, 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 blah. I don't sit have to give you a biography on them. You get the idea on who these people are. But the writer does break them down into triumphant and tragic categories. And I'd like to just talk just a little bit before we jump into the meat of the answer of why, or at least the partial answer that I'm going to present and propose. He says in verse 32, 34, what more should I say? And I'll just give you a couple little hints about each of these people. He talks first about Gideon. <clears throat> now, the first four people that he mentions are who? They're judges of Israel. And he, you could tell he's just rattling these off because... He doesn't rattle them off in order. He first mentions Gideon, which is Judges chapter 6. Then Barak, who's Judges chapter 4. Samson, who's 13. And then Jephthah, who's chapter 11. And then he goes into David, who is all written about a beginning in 1 Samuel. And then Samuel and the prophets. <clears throat> and they did all of these powerful things. They conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and so forth and so on. He also mentions people here without mentioning people here. He says they shut the mouth of lions. Who's he talking about there? The first thing that comes to mind, Daniel. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. The mouths were shut by his faith. Samson too, he also ripped apart a lion with his bare hands and destroyed him, right? We also hear of David who defeated not only the bear, but the lion as well. They quenched the power of fire. Again, referring back to, to the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were, the fiery furnace was heated up ten times the amount. And they were sent down into the fiery furnace. And what did they say before they did that? You know what? We're not going to bow down and worship your God. And our God's going to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to be fine with that. So they get thrown into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks and goes, wait a second. I see four people down there, and the fourth looks like a son of God. And so we see God being with these people through the triumph and through the tragedy. The edge of the sword, talking about escaping that, points to David on several occasions being chased by Saul. For those who had weakness and they were made strong, they became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. We think of David, we think of Samson and many others. And then, of course, women receiving back their dead by resurrection. 
There's two that we read of in the Old Testament. We have Elijah, who raised the widow of Zarephath's son when he died. And that's 1 Kings 17, if you'd like to read more about that. And then Elisha, the Shunammite woman's son, he raised her from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. These all, through all the difficulty, these were absolute perfect examples of being triumphant in their faith. Trusting God and literally seeing the results of God delivering them miraculously in the midst of a real present reality, a real physical battle that they were going through, real physical people being raised from the dead. But then we go to the tragic side, which is, again, what I'd like to highlight. It says others were tortured in verse 35, not accepting their release so that they may obtain a better resurrection. Now, a lot of times people say they're being tortured and they're going, no, 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 stop torturing. You're going to stop torturing me. No, don't do that. Keep torturing me because I want a better resurrection. That's not what it what it means. Basically, what it's referring to is 2 Maccabees chapter 7. Now, the book of Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha. It's not canonized, but it is a very reliable source of history. Although it does contain a few mistakes here and there, it's not Holy Spirit inspired, but it's something that the Jews, especially in the first and second century, referred back to and it was also a very much, very much so, excuse me, a source of hope. Because Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the, saluted, uh, the Seleucian uh, Syrian king, came in and absolutely desecrated the temple. He desecrated Jerusalem. He absolutely went against every aspect of the law. He set up an image inside the temple of Jupiter, the god that he worshipped. He sacrificed a pig in the most holy of holies. We read in Daniel, he refers to this, and a lot of the allusions to that abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 and so forth are echoing this story. But then what happened is, is Judas Maccabeus, his father, Matthias, said, we're not going to take this anymore. Let's fight. They joined. Matthias ended up dying, and Judas and his brothers continued the revolt, and they absolutely wiped out the Saludian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. But in the meantime, what happened was, was this man wreaked havoc on those that would not convert. And in Maccabees chapter 7, we see a story of faith where he brutally persecuted a family, a mother and her seven children, actually her seven boys. The passage that I'm going to read is right after, right <clears throat> taken from the book, <clears throat> just to give you an idea of what they went through. It says, after the first brother was tortured and died by the hand of Antiochus, they brought the second to be made sport of. After tearing off his skin and his hair from his head, they asked him, will you eat of this pork rather than have your body tortured and tormented limb by limb? And answering in the language of his ancestors, he said, never. So he in turn suffered the same tortures as the first. And here's where we get this passage. With his last breath, he said, you accursed fiend, meaning you, you accursed demon. You are depriving us of this present life, 
But the king of the universe, excuse me, sorry about that. The king of the universe will raise us up to live again forever because we are dying for his laws. So this family made it into Hebrews because during this time in Second Temple Judaism, this story, they actually had a holiday to commemorate this woman and her family who endured the torture rather than give up. And the reason that they did it, and here's the key, and here's a pivot point, I guess you could say in our message, they did it because of the hope of the resurrection. <clears throat> they did it because of the hope of the resurrection. And this is the key to why and how we can endure tragedy. And I'm not just going to tell you, so when you have tragedy, just hope in the future and hope in the resurrection. I know you already know that. I know, again, I mentioned this is our 40th sermon in Hebrews, our 13th in the chapter of, of faith. But I believe this passage that we're talking about today sums up everything that has been said in the entire book up to this point. It points and it gives a crystal, a, crystal, a crystal clear focus on what the writer is trying to smack us into our head. Get this, get this, really understand what's going on. This whole chapter is about a hope and a promise that's not necessarily in this world right now, but that has actually begun in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's that resurrection. You see, why they tragically died and suffered for their faith, how they did it is because of what they saw in the future. They saw God was making a new world, which gave meaning to their endurance. They had faith during this tragedy because they really believed that this new world would not only come, but the writer is trying to tell them that it was actually inaugurated and launched in Christ himself. And this is what I like to call a proper eschatological hope. And I know that's a big word. Eschatological hope. It comes from eschatology. Okay, eschatology is what we would call the doctrine of last things. But an eschatological hope means something a little bit different. It's not just hoping for a better end. Now, I remember for me, <clears throat> public preaching for me, when I would street preach often, was always about just helping people to understand the gospel, to get people saved, to be obedient, and to do all those good things. Not until I met someone in 2008 who helped produce a street preaching documentary that I did, did my eyes open up from what he told me. It was something simple. He didn't intend to say anything, really. He just said, you know, why are you going out there and allowing these people when you're on public property to chase you away? You're not on private property. He said every square inch of this world is owned by Christ. He has put the stake in the ground when he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand and said all authority on heaven in heaven and on earth is given to me. And he not only put that stake in the ground, but he sparked 
something that has been growing and will continue to grow exponentially until his return. And we are a part of that. And that is that new creation has been launched in Christ. Now, most people have this eschatological hope, like I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to have a, you know, be gone or have some disembodied existence flat float floating up in this place or this atmosphere called heaven. And that's where I'm going to live. But that's completely missing the point. That's taught absolutely nowhere in Scripture. But we've taken pop theology and pop eschatology and we've read it into all this stuff. We look at the newspapers and we read it into our Bible, which is wrong. What if I told you that it's not the end times, it's the beginning times. It's not that it's, it's, we're waiting for the end. No, the beginning has started. The beginning started in Christ's resurrection. And so this applies to this new age. Now we could take the most popular verse that I know most of you would know, right? And it's not Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then everyone, he finishes it. And that's nothing compared to this verse. John 3, 16. We love it. We all know it probably, or we're studying it. If we just became a Christian, it's probably one of the first verses you've learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Now that verse is real. It's true. But what we've done is we've read into that verse. If you look at the translators over the last several hundred years, they look and they put in there eternal life. Now that is ultimately what it could say. But the issue lies with, and I'm going to get a little technical here, please bear with me. The Greek adjective for eternal is aionios. Okay, that's the Greek adjective. But the noun is translated age, aeon, a long period of time. And that's how it's used in John 3.16. So a proper translation would be, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And according to the Jews, how they looked at everything was in two ages. They looked at the age that they were in and the age that was promised to come. This was the regular vernacular. It was on everyone's mind, especially during the time of Christ. They were waiting for the new age to be gone when heaven would come to earth and God would rule on the throne of David. And so rather than he will not perish but have everlasting life, a better translation and one that would make the focus of this eschatological hope even clearer would be, but would share in the life of God's new age. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but should share in the life of God's new age. And this is where I believe we miss it. And this is where I believe a lot of times we choose this way when God is calling us here. We we're in our we're in our jobs. I can't tell you how many people I speak to that are just awesome kingdom workers, but because they're not in formal ministry, they feel like they're a failure. They're not doing what God maybe called it. I need to be doing something more. No, you maybe need to do something more. 
But the work that God has given you to do, regardless of what it is, regardless of who you are, you are doing work towards and in this new age that Jesus started. So you are building for and towards this new age to come to its culmination. And I want to challenge you to start reading the scriptures like that. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is in these that testify about me. There was no Jew around the time of Jesus that was thinking about going to heaven when they died. None. It wasn't a concept. You don't read about it in the Old Testament. Heaven is a place where God is. What you read in the New Testament is what we read, and the Old Testament is what we read in our Old Testament reading. What was it? It's about a new heavens and new earth. It's not about going off to heaven. It's about heaven coming down here. And that's what Jesus said when he announced the kingdom of God is here. The rule of God is here. That's what kingdom means. The rule of God. Heaven is now coming and breaking in the earth. So instead, you study the scriptures because you suppose that you'll discover the life of God's coming age in the scriptures? Well, that's these or that testify about me. God's coming age has come in Christ. And that changes everything about who we are, how we handle our faith, how we handle triumph, but especially how we handle tragedy. See, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom, that kingdom age, that new age. He's transferred us into that of his beloved son. And this is what the four gospels are about. The story of a man standing so close to this very beautiful, large landscape brush painting in some museum. He had his nose almost pushed right up to it. And the person said, what are you doing? Why are you so close? You can't even see it. He says, oh, I'm just looking at the brush strokes like this. And that's what we do with our Bible. We're all into the brush strokes. When we pull the lens back and we see the big picture that the gospels are, are the brush strokes of Jesus's divinity are there. The brush strokes of the cool miracles that he did were there. The brush strokes of his announcing the kingdom of God are there. But when you pull it back, you see that these are all pointing to the fact that the new age is now here. The new age has begun. And so this purpose that we have goes beyond just when we pass, we're going to stay with God in heaven, we are. But it's about that. What's going to happen after that is going to be a reuniting of our bodies on a real, new, renewed heaven and earth where that age that has begun with Christ is going to be in its fullness. We read about that in Isaiah 65. It's talking about the time when the lion and the lamb will lie together. People argue, is that the kingdom or is it just before the kingdom? Either way, it's pointing in that right direction and so that's what the hebrews are doing here the hebrew writer has been trying to show us this there he's been so excited through you know I, I often think of my wife she gets so excited when she tells me something that happened but she makes me just 
scat, as we say in Italian. Just she just makes she'll, she'll she'll she won't tell me what happened, but she tells me every little detail. She's building it up. She's building it up. She's a great storyteller, and I'm on the edge of my seat. What is it? And then at the end, she just she bursts it on the scene, and I'm just like, why didn't you just tell me that in the beginning? <laughs> she goes, no, I want to tell you the whole thing, right? And it's true. If the Hebrews, that's what this writer's doing. He waited, he's, he's waiting 11 chapters. This culminating, all this stuff about Jesus being better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the angels, better, 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 better. New covenant, better than the old. Yeah, but so what, Mr. Writer of the Hebrews? Well, now you have to have faith. In what, Writer of the Hebrews? In the new creation. That's what the whole chapter 11 is about. The promise of that new land. The promise that Jesus promised Abraham, but on a bigger scale, that's going to consume the whole entire earth. Now, this is, again, we're going to get in now. Now that I've laid that down, I want to transition to something a little bit more uh, that you can grab onto as it relates to this tragedies that we experience in our life. Why is God allowing it? We see that it's the bigger purpose. We see that there's a hope of the resurrection. But Lord, I still have to live from now until then. I still have to live now through this pain. I have to still go around worrying about all these things because of these tragedies and these battles that I'm going through. What we have to remember is faith is contagious. Faith is designed to be exposed through action. And as it's exposed through action... As you show your faith, as James says, it spreads and it paves the way for you and for others to follow. That's why he's showing the faith of all these folks. He's saying this one had faith, this one had faith, this one looked like he failed, but he didn't. He had faith, blah, 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 and he goes through. It all reveals the bigger purpose of the why of this tragedy. And again, it doesn't show the comprehensive why, because we don't know the mind of God. We will know why. But I believe we know partial, which I think could carry us through. And I remember working in a nightclub. This was a few months ago. No, but I remember working in a nightclub. You know, when you guys used to go to the nightclubs, right? When you go up to, when you first walk in, especially if it was a club that had underage and, and overage people, they would give you some sort of stamp or something to show that you were okay to have a drink. Well, when I was working there, we would give glow sticks. And we would tie them around the wrist of the people. And so those glow sticks, what did they do? They helped out a lot because, first of all, the person, the bartender, would be able to see what color glow stick you had on. They didn't have to worry about it. And you know why? Because the place is often completely dark. It's black. And so the glow sticks helped the bartenders, but as security, it helped even more because we were able to see where people were lurking. And one person would always go around and make sure that the other person had their glow stick on. Don't take it off because we wanted to be able to maintain control, but we also wanted to be able to see the people in the dark. The same with my daughter at the pool club. I remember going there when she was younger on Labor Day. 
I loved it when my wife would dress her in a shiny, obnoxious bathing suit that had glitter stuff all over it because there's hundreds of people there. And through those people, I go, oh, boom, there she is. I can see. You see, what does this have to do with it? You want to look at yourself. It's not necessarily that you are wearing a glow stick. But when you go through these tragedies, you are in essence lighting the way. Your reaction to the tragedies that happen in your life are going to determine how and where people place God in that picture. Then it's going to determine they are going to be able to father either look at you and follow that path. And when all of us Christians have that light and we are all lit up, it becomes so clear. It, sh- it, 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 ex- it blows up our faith. That's why I believe part of the reason why God creates these situations, gives us them to endure, because he wants us to shine. Look at every single one of these people. These people being sawed in two. That refers to Isaiah. That's, that's the, the history there. That's not in the scriptures. But I don't know about you, but if I look at Isaiah, and I know that that prophet was preaching, you just heard it, new creation. Every single one of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the problems that they had, they were looking towards that bigger prize. That bigger prize has arrived. It's Jesus. He came. That's why it says at the end that God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We are all united in this one single unique identifier of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his kingship, he's royally enthroned, and now we are the foot soldiers that we're going to get shot, we are going to get wounded, we are going to see our compadres fall down around us, but are we going to be darkened out, or are we going to be that glow stick? We're seeing it right now with Pastor Steve. He's going through this time, but look back at the light. I don't know Pastor Steve. I've met him twice. But I know you guys, and I, I guarantee you that he is looking back here, and others will look back at his life and will see a trail of glow sticks, regardless what happens. And so we have to look beyond our situation. We have to look beyond the immediate tragedy and realize that we are going to again be united with those that go before us. I know that's like, oh, it's not old light switch. Thank you for that, Pat. Now I feel great. No, but we have to understand how we respond is going to determine how and if we get this right. And I believe without this picture, without the picture of this eschatological hope, without going and knowing that I am lighting the way based upon how I deal with this situation. If I lose my job, people are watching. If I lose a family member, people are watching. And I'm not saying you're going to go, oh, everything's great because I'm the glow stick. No, you're going to do all the things you need to do. You're going to mourn. You're going to do all the human things that God is going to allow and be with you through. But then people are going to look. And that is the way of the kingdom. That pushes the kingdom forward. You see, the kingdom moves forward when faith and love meet pain. That's when the kingdom moves forward. 
The kingdom doesn't move forward with physical battle. The kingdom doesn't move forward when we force people to be Christians. The kingdom's not going to be forward, move forward if a Christian president gets into office. Nope. The kingdom's going to move forward when faith and love meet pain. Because when that happens, that's when people look and go, how is that possible? That that's how they're acting. How is this even? <laughs> There's no way. These people believe that. That's why they're in the hall of faith. We have to get our picture right. The big picture of that hope of the new creation, not the little tiny picture of let's get me out of here and get me off to heaven. We have to get the picture right in order to make sense of the world. I love the story of the man who came home from work. He was all busy and his son was sitting there wanting to play with him. He still had about another hour's worth of work. So what does he do? He sees a magazine on the table. He grabs it. He, he sees a picture of, of, of the world, right? Maybe you heard this before. And he pulls it out. He rips it into a million pieces and he gives it to his son. He says, don't worry, son. I'll be right back to play with you. I want you to take some tape. It's a picture of the world. And I want you to put it all together. <laughs> He's thinking it's going to take about an hour. The kid comes back in 10 minutes. How did you do that? That's impossible. He goes, no, dad, it's not impossible. On the back of the picture of the world was a picture of the man. One man. He says, I know that if I got the man right, the world would fall into place. And I know that sounds a little cheeky and sweet and gushy, but it's true. Once we get ourselves right on this issue, that's when the kingdom of God is going to start to move forward. And this world is going to start to transform according to God's law, according to God's rule, according to God's kingdom. So we have to follow this example. This man went through everything. He's talking about all, like I said here. He says that all these have gained approval through their faith. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph. Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David, and everyone in between. Their faith made them glow. Their faith made them become beacons of hope and signposts that point people in that direction. That's what I believe God wants us to do. We have to take off our going to heaven glasses. We're going to go to heaven when we die. But Jesus never talked about going to heaven. No, I mean, if you look in the New Testament, we see very, very few at all talks about going to heaven. Paul says, I'd, I'd rather be with the Lord. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to do. Do I want to go be with the Lord or do I want to stay here? I'm torn. Paul went up to the third heaven. Old Testament doesn't talk about that. What is the main focus of the New Testament? Resurrection. It's all over. When the people in Acts 17 got arrested, they didn't get brought up into the front, into the, uh, to the rulers and say, these people are telling everyone how to get to heaven. Oh, arrest them. That would have been great. The Romans would have been like, oh, that sounds like a neat little thing. Never heard of it before, but that sounds good. No, they said these people are proclaiming another king. A king, his name is Jesus, saying that he rose from the dead. That's a threat. Because if there's a king who rose from the dead, who brought a kingdom, that presupposes battle. 
And so that's what this, all, this battle is about. You are called with the trumpet blast, the shofar, to go out into this world that has been occupied already by this flag of Christ. But the systems of the world need to feel the love of Christ. The systems of the world need to see faith in action. The systems of the world, the people of the world, need to see us respond in love when we face these difficult times and these difficult tragedies. So I pray that you have enjoyed the best sermon that I've ever preached. (laughs) Just kidding. I say that just to get your attention and cause you to laugh on a very difficult topic and something very difficult. It doesn't give all the answers on the tragedy because no one has that. But you can know the loving, just God, your creator, is with you through it all. But he's calling you now to be with him and in his victory. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for for your son who's given us his life. You've given us him, Lord, to lay down his life for us. The blood of Christ, Lord, covers all of our sins. The blood of Christ, Lord, gives us forgiveness. The blood of Christ, Lord, makes us right before you so we can now go out and make the world right for you. Please be with us as we do that, Lord. You know the heart condition of every single person in here, Lord. You know that there's not one heart in here that can hide from your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of the people here, including myself. Lord, that we would surrender all to you. That we would not only surrender our lives to Christ in faith because of the grace that you've given us, but that we would surrender our talents, our skills, we would surrender the, fact, the jobs that we're in right now. We would go in tomorrow with a new look, with a new outlook, with a new perspective that we're doing your work, not the work of our employer. And so we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.